central, I think, to Christine's work is engaging with sound and engaging with how sound is understood, how it's experienced, how it's valued, how it functions within the world as a as a, a point of inequality between the disability community, the deaf community, and the larger world, how it how the structures and systems that we operate in by and large privilege uh, sound and the hearing world over those who are members of the deaf community. Welcome to Towards a Kinder Public, a podcast dedicated to designing kinder public space that better meets our interconnected needs. I'm Kevin Castle, and along with Annie Chen, we are Kinder Public. We are so fortunate to be able to share this conversation with Rachel Seligman, the Assistant Director for Curatorial Affairs and the Malloy Curator at the Francis Young Tang Teaching Museum and Art Gallery at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York. Rachel recently curated an exhibition of the Berlin-based artist Christine Sun Kim with works in sound, drawing, mural, and video. Christine Sun Kim explores themes of notation, transcription and conversion, scale, humor, vibration, body, volume, and language, including American Sign Language, or ASL. The exhibition at the Tang Museum was accompanied by months of programming, including free ASL workshops for the community, ASL-only curatorial tours, and deaf community gatherings. Rachel will share with us how she became familiar with the work, the language and disability frameworks that Christine Sun Kim prefers to use, and how hearing people push the work of building bridges onto the disability community that they claim to include. To share the disability frameworks that I carry into this conversation, I want to consider the idea of deaf gain. I believe that deafness should be understood as a whole and complete state of being, which hearing people have little incentive to consider. The hearing typical world generally frames deafness as loss, and incorrectly identifies American Sign Language as a kind of visual English. When we fail to correct this misconception, We fail to implement true communication access for all in public space, and we prevent hearing people from experiencing beneficial languages and perspectives, and that is our loss. This interview is filled with information about how the Tang Museum worked to become a more inclusive space. I hope you find it informative, and join us again for part two next week where we will dive into some specific modifications of operations and exhibition space and hear a perspective-shifting story about inclusivity in public space. Thank you so much for listening. I've enjoyed talking to you so much. Um, We've had a few conversations leading up to this one. Welcome, and can you share a little bit about the museum its location and the work it focuses on. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's really an honor to be talking to you. I'm so pleased. Um, 
And yes, let me start just by saying a little bit about the museum it is located on the Skidmore College campus in Saratoga Springs, New York. And the museum opened in the year 2000. So we're uh, 23. And we're an academic museum, which means that we have a mission to engage and to be a space of teaching and learning for our campus community. Um, and what makes, I think, the Tang a little bit distinctive is that what this means for us is that we are um, a space for teaching and learning across all the areas of study and all the academic disciplines on our campus. So that's a, a kind of core mission for the museum, to be a, a space of active and engaged learning and to be a space for interdisciplinary learning where people can come and use visual art to connect their ideas and understandings and learnings about what it means to be alive in the world today. We also obviously are um, very dedicated to welcoming and engaging the community, uh, the broader community, uh, with the richness and the diversity of the human experience. And we do that, again, through the exhibitions that we make and the programs that we present. So, you know, I'd love to say just a little bit more generally about the museum. We present rotating exhibitions throughout the year. So we all our exhibition spaces all our gallery spaces are devoted to rotating exhibitions we don't have galleries for um that are sort of permanently installed with the collection and we focus on making interdisciplinary exhibitions that are co-curated with faculty um we also make one person exhibitions of artists that we consider to be uh, sort of under recognized within the modern and contemporary art canon and so we're looking to kind of reinsert them um, into the discourse. And we also do one-person exhibitions of mid-career artists um, for whom this might be their first solo exhibition in a museum. And we also do a lot of exhibition making that's course-based, um, so working with students in classes. All of our curatorial program is really developed with an eye towards connecting with the issues and scholarship and questions that are being grappled with by our on-campus community or the community at large, you know, around the country, around the world. So we want to be a place where people can ask hard questions, you know, tackle, grapple with difficult issues and think about, think deeply about the human experience. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love the idea also that you're presenting a place where people can grapple with some issues that are difficult and challenging. And this is the place that you will be supported and safe to do so. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have curated a wonderful exhibition of the artist Christine Sun Kim's work. Can I ask what drew you to this work? And when did you first start thinking about her work in a curatorial sense? And can you talk about the show and the works you have put together for the exhibition at the Tang Museum? Yes, I, I first encountered Christine's work in 2013, so about 10 years ago. And I was introduced to it by a student of ours who was interning at the curatorial in the curatorial department here at the Tang. And this student was a member of the deaf community. And she told me I should show Christine's work. And um, I'm 
forever grateful to her for that because um, I was drawn to it immediately. Uh, I was drawn to it because it approached sound-based art from a direction that I had not really seen before and which I found really compelling um, and, and moving. Um, at that time, Christine was creating visualizations of sound using speakers and subwoofers to move pigment around on paper. So she was basically creating drawings made by sound waves. I immediately began thinking about her work in terms of, you know, being a curator who wanted to show her work um, at the Tang and wanted to introduce that work to um, our communities here um, at, at Skidmore and in Saratoga. Um, and my first impulse actually was, and what I invited her to do at that time was to work on something um, for our elevator where we have a series called Elevator Music, which is all sound-based art. So Christine and I communicated about that idea in 2013, 2014, but she had just moved to Berlin and she wasn't really in a position to create a site-specific work back in the US at that time. Um, so, but I've been following her work ever since as it has evolved um, and it's evolved quite a bit over the last decade. And I've been sort of waiting for the right moment to show her work ever since. So I would say that this show took shape in 2020 is when it sort of began. Um, and it's a curatorial collaboration between several venues. So I do want to give credit where credit is due to everyone who was involved in um, making a solo show of Christine's work possible. The Contemporary Art Gallery in Vancouver, Remy Modern, which is a great museum in Saskatchewan, in Saskatoon, and the Gund Gallery at Kenyon College um, in Ohio, and the Tang at Skidmore. We all collaborated together to um, put this show together. It's, it's about 40 artworks and most of them are um, borrowed from lenders from collectors um, so it was a it's a big project to do that to pull all of that together um, the show is drawings videos murals and sound work um, and it's it's from about the last 10 years so it's a kind of mid-career survey I would say I would say the largest number of um, the the medium that has the largest number of works in the show is drawings. Drawing is a is a very big part of Christine's practice. Um, a lot of these drawings are fairly large scale. They're like fifty to sixty inches square, so they're very um, sort of human scale, and they're almost all charcoal on paper. So black and white is the kind of dominant. Um, color scheme of the show. There are also two murals in the show, one of which is a brand new site-specific piece that incorporates a big, you know, painting on the wall, but also framed drawings that hang on top of that mural. Um, so there's a, I think, a general sense in the show of a kind of large scale, which we could talk about at some point, um, sort of the conceptual underpinnings of um, Christine's use of scale. That's a great overview of how the works look and the scale and what, what the experience is in the space. We will touch on many of these concepts in more depth later in our discussion, but 
for the purposes of establishing our language and frameworks, can you explain the words that Christine Sun Kim prefers and uses to talk about herself, her linguistic community, and her art practice? I just want to get the language established for our conversation. Okay, yes. Um, I'll start by saying that although American Sign Language and the oppression faced by the deaf community are often fundamental parts of her work, mm -hmm. centering Christine's deafness in the lowercase sense of the word, especially when talking about her artwork, can be quite reductive and othering. And it's something that, um, as a curator of her work, I try to be really mindful of. Mm -hmm. Um to answer your question, Christine considers herself a member of the deaf community, and she's explicit about that being deaf with a capital D. There is a really important distinction between capital and lowercase d when you're using the word deaf, because deaf with a lowercase d means a medical condition. But deaf with a capital D means a whole community, a culture which is a really rich culture of shared languages, you know, shared history of social beliefs and values. It has a vibrant uh, literary tradition. So, you know, it operates very similarly to any other culture. Um, and Christine is very explicit about being a member of the deaf community and of, um, uh, you know, sharing in that deaf culture. Um, Christine's first language or natural language is ASL, American Sign Language. Um, she doesn't read lips. She doesn't take speech therapy. And I think it's important to say a little bit about ASL because it's misunderstood often in the hearing world. Mm -hmm. ASL is a really complex, nuanced visual language. It incorporates facial expression, hand shapes, and hand and body movement. So um, people often think of ASL and refer to it as gestures, as a language of gestures. Um, and that's really inaccurate and really reductive. So like to give you an example or a sense of the importance of facial expression, Christine says that ASL is 80% facial expression and 20% 20, 20 handshake. Um, so it's, it's a language that incorporates all of this very bodily, very corporeal language. And it's also one of hundreds of different sign languages used all around the world. So it's it's not the only sign language. Um, each one has its own distinctive um, vocabulary, of course. Um, ASL is not related to spoken English. Its origins are actually closer to French sign language um, because of how it developed and evolved. Someone who's signing in French sign language would have an easier time being understood by someone who's who's signing in ASL than say uh, between an ASL speaker and a British sign language speaker. Those languages, mm -hmm. even though mm. in spoken language, they're very almost the same. In sign language, they're nothing like each other. Mm -hmm. So the origins of these languages and how they evolve and how they exist is completely independent of spoken language. And ASL has an entirely different grammar and entirely different syntax than, than spoken English. Um, and of course, people who use ASL, who speak ASL, often rely on an interpreter um, when they're communicating with someone who um, uses spoken language. And, um, and it's impor important to know that in most cases that the person who's doing that work is called an interpreter and not a translator. 
seconds later. So, I mean, I could I could say a lot more about ASL if you would like, but um, I'm also happy to um, to say a little bit more about languages and framework. I think it was really helpful, and I think that I would just like to go back and touch on something which you which you did mention, which is that um, deaf with a small d is referring to a medical condition and deaf with a capital D is referring to a linguistic community. Is that correct? Yes, I would say that's correct. Um, but I would say that deaf with a capital D is referring to a, a community that maybe that certainly is anchored linguistically, but that incorporates members who may also um, speak spoken languages may uh, may have partial deafness as a to as opposed to being mm -hmm. entirely deaf and so capital d deaf community or deaf culture is you know again like any other culture extremely varied it is not a monolith it's not there's not a sort of one size fits all there's many different ways to be a member of the deaf community and there are um, many different kinds of ways of understanding mm -hmm. yourself um, to be a, a member of the deaf community. So um, it could be that you are deaf with a lowercase d, but don't really understand yourself to be part of the deaf community. Um, and certainly there are hearing individuals who are part of deaf community um, in various ways. And that, that I think is most clearly understood because that might seem a little counterintuitive, but I think if you think about family members, that's a really good way to mm -hmm. think about it. So you might be a CODA, you know, a child of a, of a deaf uh, adult, and you might understand yourself to be part of the deaf community um, because of that family connection and having grown up um, with deaf parents, for example. Mm -hmm. Having explained that, can you touch on the works and the concepts that she that she deals with in her artwork and that are presented in your show? Central, I think, to Christine's work is engaging with sound. And engaging with how sound is understood, how it's experienced, how it's valued, how it functions within the world as a, you know, as a, a point of inequality between the disability community, the deaf community, and the larger world. How the structures and systems that we operate in, by and large, privilege uh, sound and the hearing world over those who are members of the deaf community. I would say that um, Christine's work is really about, um, it's really about experiencing sound, not orally, that is in the sense of hearing it through your ears, but rather thinking about the visual manifestations of sound, the physical experience of sound, and the political dimensions that sound inhabits. And for those of us who are hearing, it's really, I think, important for us to begin to see the ways in which um, sound 
operates for those who are members of the deaf community. It's not accurate to say that members of the deaf community have no experience of sound. In fact, members of the deaf community have an incredibly intimate and intense understanding of sound. Um, It's just different from the one that we have as hearing individuals. And it's really important for us, I think, to begin to understand sound in these other dimensions um, because it helps us to understand the lived experience of other people in our communities. Mm-hmm. I would say that for over this, the last 10 years, you know, I was talking about the show really is kind of a survey of the last 10 years or so. And over that time, um, Christine has really refined a, a very singular uh, kind of dryly humorous approach to making work um, and a formal vocabulary that's quite distinctive and recognizable. Uh, She uses elements from a lot of existing visual languages that we as um, people who can hear are, are familiar with, like infographics or musical notation. Um, memes um, and or written English. So things that we're very familiar with. And she combines them and employs them in different moments and different works, both to create a kind of clarity of communication across this difference of language, but also to kind of harness the power of those existing languages and what they mean to um, the hearing world as a kind of conceptual uh, strategy for communicating about how she is experiencing the structures and systems of this uh, world. One of the major visual vocabularies that you see a lot in her work that's in this show is her use of musical notation, um, by which I mean musical notes, staff lines, and things like dynamic markings, like forte markings and piano markings, and and mm-hmm. also the kind of arced line um, of that indicates a legato, a certain style of of playing, a smooth a smooth uh, connecting of musical notes. Mm-hmm. And so she is with those um, musical notations. She's really asking us to think about the power and the history of music in our cultures. And she's kind of harnessing that power in order to speak about the relationship of um, deaf community to power and structures, social structures. Mm-hmm. There's one other theme that jumped out to me in the show, which was her humorous handling of the lack of understanding between hearing people and deaf people and the way that hearing people are not aware of their counterparts as deaf people must be of their hearing counterparts. That's right. I mean, because hearing people are the dominant culture, we're not obligated to really pay any attention Um, But if you're a member of the deaf community, you have to um, navigate within this system that isn't 
constructed with you in mind. And so you're, you're always reminded of, and you're always having to negotiate your basic existence within that, within that world, um, which is exhausting. Mm -hmm. And some of her work is about that too. It's about the, um, the toll that all of that additional effort um, and labor takes on the physical and psychological, you know, health of the individual. But yes, humor is a strategy that she has employed um, and which I think is extremely effective. Uh, She has said that she isn't a naturally funny person. She, this is something that she cultivated over time um, as a tool, as a strategy for engaging with people across difference. And when engaging with people over, you know, very challenging content and that humor is a bridge that connects us and reminds us of our shared humanity and is therefore um, one of a a number of of kind of strategies that she uses in order to um, get people's attention and connect them and sort of disarm or drop um, their defenses so that there's space there for people to actually um, come to these ideas in an open way and potentially recognize their themselves or their part in these um, systems and oppressions that that are sort of part of, of the daily life of members of the deaf community. Christine is very clear that she's not speaking for the deaf community at large. She's speaking only for herself and her work very much comes from a um, place of her individual experience. Mm-hmm. So she's telling stories about her individual experience, but in a way that allows us to see the larger, more universal messages behind them and to think about how we might be complicit in some of those structures that are in place that cause her to have those individual experiences that she has. Mm -hmm. This is a theme that comes up for us over and over where the weight of building the bridge is placed on the person with the disability rather than the people who have... The people with privilege, right? The people with the privilege and the power. Mm -hmm. Um, but you're right that that's a, a an incredible imbalance. The people with the privilege and the power are not generally do not take responsibility for building those bridges. Yes, and that falls to it falls to the community that is that is struggling. Mm-hmm. It's so important to recognize that. And thank you so much for sharing these stories because we are not doing the work that we should be to to help improve improve our communities and make them more inclusive spaces. Join us again for part two next week, and be sure to check out our website, kinderpublic.com, for more information about our guest and the topic as well as a full transcript of the conversation, which can be found on the podcast page. A captioned episode is available on our YouTube channel, where we are at Kinder Public. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 
If you have enjoyed an episode of Towards a Kinder Public, we would love your help in sharing the episode with others. Please also leave us a rating and a review. It helps us make our topics more visible, and we really appreciate your support. If you want to share information about the accessibility of public space and places that are doing things right, email podcast at kinderpublic.com. I'm Kevin Castle. My guest has been Rachel Seligman, the Assistant Director for Curatorial Affairs and the Malloy Curator at the Tang Museum in Saratoga Springs, New York. Have a very good week.